from the heart of our nation's capital. Here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for tuning in on this 10th day of November, the 247th birthday of the Marine Corps. Happy birthday to all my fellow Marines who are tuned in today. Well, coming up, one of the undeniable messages from Tuesday's election was that more than anything, Americans agree the nation is headed in the wrong direction. In fact, 70% of voters said the nation is on the wrong track. The question is, was that message received? 75% of voters say the country is headed into the wrong direction despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Uh, the president yesterday repeating the administration's claim that Americans just don't know what he's doing. Well, I think they do. And we're going to talk about that with Indiana Congressman Greg Pence in just a moment. And speaking of Congress, the Republicans are inching their way toward the majority. FRC Action's Matt Carpenter will be here with the latest numbers on this year's election. But I'll let you know in advance, the control of the Senate is still up in the air. Why is that important? Well, I'll let the Democrat Senate leader Chuck Schumer tell you. Here's what we want to get done in the next Senate. We want to protect a woman's right to choose. We want to protect the right to marry those who you love by passing the Marriage Equality Act. We want to fight out to protect our democracy by securing the right to vote. You know, that really tells us a lot about the priorities of some of those that want to lead this country. And um, we're going to talk about the lame duck session as well that's going to be starting on, uh, I say it's already underway, but in earnest will be starting on Monday. And we'll also continue our analysis of the election results and how faith, family, and freedom fared when we talk to FRC's Connor Simmelsberg a little later on the program. And if you're watching, you can tell this is not my studio. We are broadcasting today from the studios of his channel in Southern California, and we certainly thank them for their hospitality as well as their partnership as a key supporter of Washington Watch. I'm here because FRC has a dinner here this evening with supporters of FRC, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will be our keynote speaker. But we'll also be joined by former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman and former Ambassador and former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell. And by the way, he will be joining me here in studio a little bit later to talk about 2024 in light of 2022. So you want to stick around for that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com, lots of resources, as always, right there at TonyPerkins.com and contact information for all of our guests and lame duck information. And uh, I'm just going to warn you now, you've got to be ready for what's going to be happening in the next two months. Our word for today comes from Amos chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. See, Amaziah was a priest of the social gospel of that day. He was handpicked by the political powers to be over the church of the golden calf set up at Bethel. Amos was a prophet called by God to tell the northern kingdom of Israel that God had sent the famines, the droughts, the plagues, the wars, and the fires, all as warning of his coming judgment, and that the solution was to repent and return to him. But what did they do? Well, they rejected the message, and they attacked the messenger. Amaziah, who tickled the ears of the people, led the way in canceling and deplatforming Amos, they rejected the truth, and the nation eventually lost their freedom and their identity. To be a part of our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible. All right, with the 2022 midterm elections now two days behind us, among the main takeaways is just how divided we are as a nation. As Christians, we need to recognize that there will be more tough battles ahead in every election. Every vote will count. As we make sense of this week's outcome, what else can we learn? And when and if the Republicans gain control of the House, we don't know what the margins will be, but 
what roadblocks might be ahead for them and what might they be able to do to keep the Biden administration's leftist agenda in check. Joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Greg Pence. He serves on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. He represents the 6th Congressional District of Indiana, and he is a veteran in the United States Marine Corps. Congressman Pence, welcome to Washington Watch and Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Thanks for having me, Tony. So did I hear you say uh, happy birthday, fellow Marine? That is right. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Uh, I've been celebrating the birthday all day. Uh, Veterans Drug Court, which is a real honor for me. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this. We've had a little bit of time for the elections to sink in. We're still tracking the numbers in terms of where the uh, balance of the House is going to be, but it looks pretty certain it's just a matter of the margins that the Republicans will be uh, in control of the House. But I think one of the messages coming away from this election is undeniable. I mean, now we've, we've had a split 50-50 Senate. You know, we've, we've had a House that's narrowly divided. We are a divided nation. Well, we are, but I, I think we can do something about that going forward. One is a little bit uh, how we behave uh, going forward. Uh, the way that uh, I have been treated in the minority for the last four years is hopefully not the way that we treat the other side. Uh, I'm looking forward to us getting about the business of Congress, uh, passing bills, reducing regulations, which I think is how we fight inflation, and I hope that the uh, oversight that we do do isn't the, a repeat of the witch hunts that we've seen the Democrats do since President Trump was elected. So do you think that there will be a more open process where we'll actually have debate over legislation and there'll be more votes? Because what we've seen under Nancy Pelosi as speaker, essentially, as you said, the minority party, the Republicans have been shut out from the process. Yeah, Tony, uh, uh, that's that's one of the, the major things we're going to do differently. Kevin McCarthy said that when we take back the House and when he's a speaker and he will be the speaker after we are taking uh the House, uh, that we will go back to what's called regular order. And for the viewers and listeners that aren't familiar with that, we would literally go introduce bills in subcommittees, debate it, mark it up, uh, add amendments, send it up to the committee, debate it, mark it up, uh, and send it onto the floor for, for debate and final passage. And that's the way we should do it so that we can have all the experts that, that we bring in in each committee setting uh, and even from the other side, bring, you know, there are people on the other side that have some expertise in certain areas. And that regular order will will be how we will do things the proper way and do the work of the people instead of what I I and even my Democratic peers uh, experienced even more so this year was just top down. Here's a bill. One night I got a bill. My phone dinged me and it went off at 3.05 in the morning, and we had a 2,456-page bill that the vote was scheduled for the next day at 10.30. We were able to push it off to 6.30, but Tony, no one read that bill, and even my right. peers on the other side of the aisle didn't know what was in it. Well, and Congressman, what you're describing there is also the way you build consensus. When everybody has a, a part to play, and I go back to my days in the uh, the state legislature, and that was the collaborative process. It wasn't always everything you wanted on the other end of it, but everybody had a part to play in it. And it, and quite frankly, a lot of times it turned out better because, as you said, you had different expertise uh, people with different expertise weighing in on it. But I think more importantly than even a fine-tuned bill is preserving our republic, which is a process by where everybody has a part to play. And when one part feels shut out, silenced, that's a recipe for trouble. Well, Tony, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and in the broader picture of... Um, of uh, regular order having been thrown off. There's also little things. Uh, I'm one of only 12, maybe, congressmen and or women that actually showed up and every proxy voted. And when you talk about building consensus, whether it's 
in committee or on the floor or meeting with the peers on your side and the other side, you know, you got to show up for work first. And uh, right. I have made every committee meeting in person, unless I took my wife for surgery. Uh, but I showed up in person all during COVID and during the pandemic. And and the rules that we have right now under Nancy Pelosi, you don't have to show up. You can You can proxy vote. And that's if you have COVID, dealing with COVID, or have been exposed for, with COVID, but that got thrown out. Uh, you have to sign an affidavit, but people aren't doing that. They're just not showing up for work. And that that adds to the divisiveness. You, you really, you can't get to know people if you're not around people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you tend to t- treat people with a little more civility when you know them. And that's, again, I go back to my days in the legislature when we, Steve Scalise and I were elected at the same time and served in Louisiana, and we were in the deep minority as Republicans, but we worked very well with our Democratic colleagues because we knew each other and we we shaped that legislation uh, together. So uh, the the process as leadership is going to be elected possibly next week. We don't know as we see the, uh, we're waiting for all the votes to be counted. But the what you're talking about are the rules that govern the way the House operates. Is that going to be at the forefront of the discussion of the election of leadership? Well, that will be on Monday when we get out there. We're going to have the leadership presentations, those that want to want run for leadership office uh, in the Republican conference. And then in the evening and then the next day, those that want to add, change some of the rules, the way that, that, that the conference operates, which... Uh, then would inure to the floor operation as well. We'll you'll be introducing and debating those, and then we'll be voting on those on Tuesday, Wednesday, and some other things on Friday. So really, next week's the organizational week, and you bring up a great point, Tony. You know, our, how, who's going to be involved? Uh, how, how many seats will we have? How many members will we have? And this dragging on. Uh, I sure hope, you know, in, in I'm in Indiana, in the state of Indiana, we had everything counted by, um, I think, midnight or certainly Wednesday morning. It's a real shame what's happening in so many other states. I think uh, the last count I had about an hour and a half ago is we didn't have 39 uh, uh, representatives identified yet. You know, it's yeah, almost yeah. 10%, 8%. Yeah, I'm out in California, and there's still uh, there's still several seats undecided here. I think uh, last I heard, they were taking their shoes off to use their toes to count with. I'm not sure, but maybe that was rumor. Uh, Greg, great to see you. Thanks Good to so see much you. Thanks for, for uh, having joining me. Us today. God bless everybody. Semper Fi. All right, Semper Fi. All right. When we come back, we're going to take a closer look at the current numbers. Where do the Republicans stand in? their pursuit of the majority, and we're also going to take a look at the Senate. Where do those outstanding Senate seats stand? And we're going to go a little bit deeper as we uh, look into the results of this past election. So don't go away. Lots more Washington Watch to come. Check out the website, TonyBergens.com. Resources there for you. And get ready. As I said, the lame duck session of Congress is going to be coming up, and we're going to need you to weigh in. There's going to be some critical, critical votes many of them attacking religious freedom. So stick with us. We're coming back after this.
everything we do begins as an idea. Before there can be acts of courage, there must be the belief that some things are worth sacrificing for. Before there can be marriage, there is the idea that man should not be alone. Before there was freedom, there was the idea that individuals are created equal. It's true that all ideas have consequences, but we're less aware that all consequences are the fruit of ideas. Before there was murder, there was hate. Before there was a holocaust, there was the belief by some people that other people are undesirable. Our beliefs determine our behavior, and our beliefs about life's biggest questions determine our worldview. Where did I come from? Who decides what is right and wrong? What happens when I die? Our answers to these questions explain why people see the world so differently. Debates about abortion are really disagreements about where life gets its value. Debates over sexuality and gender and marriage are really disagreements about whether the rules are made by us or for us. What we think of as political debates are often much more than that. They're disagreements about the purpose of our lives and the source of truth. As Christians, our goal must be to think biblically about everything. Our goal is to help you see beyond red and blue, left and right, to see the battle of ideas at the root of it all. Our goal is to equip Christians with a biblical worldview and help them advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square. Cultural renewal doesn't begin with campaigns and elections. It begins with individuals turning from lies to truth. But that won't happen if people can't recognize a lie and don't believe truth exists. We want to help you see the spiritual war behind the political war, the truth claims behind the press release, and the forest and the trees. Welcome back to Washington Watch. We're broadcasting from Southern California in the studios of his channel. We're grateful for their hospitality and their partnership with Washington Watch. Well, it's an unfortunate reality. We're getting more accustomed to uh, having to wait for the outcome of every election. Is, some people say this is crazy. With all of the technology, why is it taking us days after the polls close to find out the results of an election? Well, Hold on to that thought, because we're going to talk about that a little bit later when I'm joined by Ken Blackwell. But there are uh, several congressional races that are still yet to be called. Now, as I said, we're going to talk about why later, but let's take a look now at what those races are, what the projections might be, and um, how long could this last? Joining me now to uh, talk, talk about this and more is Matt Carpenter. He is the director of FRC Action. Matt, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. Great to be with you. Okay, Matt, it's after 5 p.m. now on the East Coast, um, and most places are still counting, um, especially out here in the West. What's the latest on control of the House? So depending on who you listen to, Tony, uh, the, the Democrats control right now anywhere from about 192 to 204 seats in the House. On the GOP side, again, depending on who you're listening to, it's anywhere in the range of uh, about 209 uh, to about 220. Um, and again, those are just different prognosticators uh, looking at their forecasting modeling. There's about 30 races that have yet to be called. Uh, 15 of which are in California. So I don't know if you if you get out of the studio, maybe you can find some precincts and, and help them count some ballots. So 218 is what's needed to claim the majority. And so if there's projections saying the Republicans could have 210, now that is a narrow majority. Are we? I mean, I've, what what are what is the range that we're hearing in terms of what the majority might be? I think the high the high mark would be about 220. Um, I've seen I've seen maybe 226. Uh, again, it's it seems to be uh, we're looking at not much past that. 230 seems to have gone out the window at this point. Um, there are a lot of races that have yet to be called in in, uh, in Arizona, in places like uh, Washington is still counting ballots in California, as I previously stated. Uh, you have some races where. Tony, they have 26% reporting. So this is going to go on into next week. Uh, we can expect this uh, some razor-thin margins as well. I'm also looking at Colorado 3, where Lauren Boebert is running. Um, she was down most of the night on election night, and she's come roaring back, and now she's up by, I think, a few hundred votes there. So 
we're looking at a, at a photo finish in a lot of these races. It's going to be very close. Let's talk about the Senate. Where does the Senate stand? So there are um, several key races out right now. Um, currently, Democrats control 48 seats to Republicans 49, uh, although one of those Republican seats is in Alaska, where they have yet to decide which Republican will, uh, will uh, finish there after they implemented ranked choice voting. So uh, Kelly Shabaka and uh, incumbent Republican Lisa Murkowski are going to head into subsequent sort of uh, rounds where they'll tabulate uh, second and third and fourth uh, choice rankings for that seat. But uh, all eyes are, are frankly on uh, right now Arizona and Nevada as Georgia is going to a runoff on December 6th with Herschel Walker challenging incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, that was, again, a razor-thin margin there. I think it was about 48,000 votes separated them. Um, so they've, they've got four weeks to, uh, to get over that 50% threshold in Georgia. But right now, uh, all eyes are, frankly, on Maricopa County in Arizona, where there's hundreds of thousands of ballots that have yet to be counted. I think I saw an update from the campaign not too long ago, Tony, and it's about 620,000 votes outstanding in Arizona right now. Um, they're moving at a snail's pace uh, in Maricopa County, which is the state's largest county, which is where Phoenix is. Um, but both campaigns uh, on the Republican side, that's Kerry Lake running for governor and then Blake Masters in Senate, are cautiously optimistic. Uh, it's it's uh, apparently most of the outstanding uh, vote is from Election Day, and so the thinking is that that's going to be Republican-leaning and that will benefit both those campaigns. But uh, at the moment, Kerry Lake trails by about, I think, 13,000 votes is what I saw last, and uh, Blake Masters is a little bit more than 95,000, so he's got a much steeper climb to to get uh, past Mark Kelly, who's the, uh, the Democrat incumbent there. And then when turning to Nevada, there's about 50,000 votes left. The majority of that's coming from Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is. And uh, there's some outstanding rural vote there in, uh, in Nevada as well. And uh, the, the Laxalt team, Adam Laxalt, is a Republican challenger of uh, Democrat incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, again, they, they're sounding cautiously optimistic that a lot of this remaining vote is going to tilt their way. So uh, all eyes are on uh, Maricopa County uh, and uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. It's, it's, it rings a lot similarly to how election night in 2020 panned out in those states. All right, Matt Carpenter, beyond the uh, you know, tabulating the results and uh, could be days before we get uh, the final numbers, what are some of the other takeaways from this election cycle? You know, Tony, I was looking at some analysis from Cook Political Report today, and the final numbers on the electorate nationwide, if you kind of, if you look at total turnout, it was 52% of the electorate was made up of GOP voters and 46% uh, Democrat voters. That's a R plus six electorate. That's similar to the 2010 wave. But what's different this time, Tony, is that in 2010, Republicans won the House by 63 seats. They swept the table. Um, that was during Obama's first term. They came in storming and took control of the majority. What's happened since then is redistricting. And what, what's, what a lot of states have done, save for a few in Florida and Tennessee come to mind, is they've protected incumbents. And so you have some very, um, some very red districts that, um, that frankly are not going to swing. And so I think we're looking at um, it's possible to have a wave election year like this, but, but the numbers to not really reflect that because what we've seen is we've seen Incumbents get uh, entrenched in these um, R plus 20, R plus 30 districts in Texas and, and across the heartland of America. Um, so you now, might. Now, Matt, 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 we're giving a little inside lingo there. Explain very quickly to someone what an R plus 30, R plus sure. 20 district is. Yeah, that's going to be a district where um, whether it's whether we're looking at the registered voter uh, data or if you can kind of model out the electorate where you just draw from inferences based on voting history and, and consumer data. Um, a, a partisan balance. So R plus 20 would be, you estimate that, there, that there's uh, R, that there's 20% more Republicans in that district than Democrats. So, so it's favoring those Republicans. Right. Uh, Matt, we're going to be talking more probably tomorrow, but we're going to keep tracking this through the process, but we're out of time right now. I uh, want to thank you for joining us. Always good to, uh, to hear from you. Thanks, Tony. And, folks, this really speaks to what we've been talking about, the divided nature of our country. And as he was saying, the redistricting, they've made these districts such that an incumbent, once they're in, it's so red or it's so blue, it's not going to change. And so you don't have the big sweeping waves come through. All right. Stick with us. More election analysis on the other side of the break.
All of us are born with the desire to find truth and meaning. Where did I come from? What happens when I die? While our answers to these questions may divide us, we are united in our need for the freedom to answer life's biggest questions and make life's biggest decisions for ourselves. That's why religious freedom matters for everyone. Religious freedom matters because the powerful have long wanted to control those who are less powerful. Religious freedom matters because the freedom of those who are different is often threatened by those who believe different is dangerous. Leah Sherabu, a Christian teenager in Nigeria, remains a captive of Boko Haram for her refusal to renounce her Christian faith. Chinese pastor Wang Yi is serving a nine-year sentence for speaking publicly against the Chinese government. All of this because people in power decided different is dangerous. At the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council, we promote religious freedom for everyone because the only alternative is religious freedom for no one. We encourage Americans and the American government to engage and advocate for the persecuted, and they do. We work every day to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We do it because that's what Jesus does. We work to give freedom to others because we ourselves have been set free. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, and uh, today I'm watching Washington from a distance. I'm actually in Southern California. We're at the His Channel Studios as we prepare for tonight's event. We've got a Friends of FRC dinner. We'll have uh, probably 650 uh, of our closest friends over to have dinner with Secretary of State Mike, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, but anyway, we're here, and uh, we're grateful for the hospitality of uh, His Channel. All right, we were just discussing in the last segment, there is still much that we don't know, even after two days of the polls being closed and people, uh, you know, counting the votes. But there is also much that we do know, uh, not only when it comes to the winners, but also when it comes to the voters and what they were saying. With me now to discuss this is Connor Simmelsberger. He's the Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity at the Family Research Council. Connor, been a busy week. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to be here. All right, so many of the initial reactions have focused on how family and marriage dynamics continue to play a massive role in voter attitudes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so CNN had some very interesting exit polling that I think plays right into what we do here right at FRC. And that's how did, how did married women and men and how did women and men who are parents vote? Well, if you're married, you were much more likely to vote Republican. And the one demographic that was exceedingly in favor of Democrats, 68%, was unmarried women. Just stark contrast. Even unmarried men went for the GOP. So that was something that was a new trend. And you converse that to parents. And as much as Republicans tried to or certain races played up parents' bills of rights and parental rights, it clearly didn't sink in with the voters because even parents across the board, um, even uh, uh, women who were parents, uh, went to the Democrats even by a point. So uh, cultural attitudes aren't just something we talk about here as uh, platitudes, but it really matters on your worldview, how you engage in society, and as we found out this week, how you vote. Well, we, we, we've known for years that people who buy houses, once they have home ownership, they become a little more fiscally conscious, and especially when it comes to policy. But when they have children, we also know they become more socially conservative. Could that be why we see some of the policies of the left that, quite frankly, are, are encouraging people, number one, not to marry, at least not young, pushing marriage off, pushing childbearing off, hoping that those uh, liberal ideas are locked in place for the duration. I think that's spot on, really is. You think about it, pushing college for all delays marriage, delays home buying, just like you said, rather than college alternatives, maybe some people going right into the workforce. And boy, the abortion messaging has really sunk in that they 
want young women to go to college, stay unmarried, put their her their her career first, herself first, her travel expenses and all that stuff way before anything about starting a family, finding a spouse, uh, having having children, becoming a mother. Because as you said, once that happens, they lose that ingrained nation that they have given to them all throughout their college years. So it's definitely been a focus of theirs. It looks like it played out for them a little bit this election. Well, you know, and I hear a lot of times from parents saying, you know, what, what, how do I get my kids to, to move in the right direction when it comes to the way they think politically? Well, one, raise them to, in such a point where they'll be able to, uh, to find the right spouse uh, led by the Lord. They'll get married and they'll have children in that order and become productive members of society. And, and I, I mean, I've heard it over and over from young people. First time they have a child, they all of a sudden become very, very concerned about the culture. All right, that's a conversation that we can have another day. I want to move into the election results at the state level. Now, you know, there was a lot of anticipation of this huge red wave. It didn't happen. We were talking a little bit earlier with Matt, made a lot of sense, that redistricting has really set Congress in such a place that there's not a lot of swing districts anymore. So these huge waves that we used to see just aren't something that's going to happen very often. But let's talk about what occurred at the state level. What do we know there? Yeah, it was the same thing you saw at the federal level. You just take that down a notch. It was the same exact thing where things were good for Republicans. It was really good. State level in Florida, they won the governorship. They also got super majorities in the House and Senate. Same thing in Iowa. Uh, they reelected Kim Reynolds. They even flipped an attorney general's race in Iowa. A Democrat who had held that seat for 30 years went Republican, and they also gained super majorities. So where things went well at the state level for Republicans, it went really well. But you look at places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, where Democrats at the top of the ticket won governorships. They also flipped state houses and state senates. So just what you saw at the federal level, it's trickling down to the states, too, where red states are getting redder and where blue states have uh, blue uh, Democrats at the top. They're getting more Democratic. Connor, do you think that the the issue of abortion is going to accelerate that? As we this this division of the country and these states, as you see the red states embracing life, putting into law the Democratic states like Michigan actually putting and California putting abortion into their constitutions, that's going to be a further division of the country, is it not? It really is. And it's sad to say, but that's just sort of a natural outgrowth of what Roe falling gave us now. Right. California is more pro-abortion than they ever were. You see states like Florida, and Iowa, they have good pro-life laws, but with super majorities, they might even act further pro-life laws. So I think that's going to further silt our country, the big sort, as they've called it in the past, where people are going to just set in the segments where they're similar to everyone else and continue to become more conservative, more uh, liberal. And I think the abortion issue uh, might even accelerate that even further. So we'll be in the thick of things yeah. pushing these pro-life laws, but it's something we're going to have to contend with in the future. All right. Uh, Connor Simmelsberger, we're going to be talking more in the days ahead. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Yep. Appreciate being on. You know, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I would rather see a nation divided with half of them standing for life than an entire nation being forced to embrace death. And that's what we had. I, look, here's my projection. This is my, and I'm not going to say it's a prediction, but I just, because I just think it's the natural outcome of things. And that is those states that are red, that embrace life, are also going to embrace policies. And I think they're going to be blessed by God and they're going to see economic development and growth. And I believe people are going to move into those states. And I believe these blue states that have embraced a culture of death, they're going to wither on the vine. All right, coming up, more analysis of this week's election when I'm joined by former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell, right here in the studio. Don't go away. It begins here and here and here every day. Before you stand, you need solid ground. Standing in a culture that wants you to surrender the truth won't work unless you have a firm foundation. At Family Research Council, we have that firm foundation, and you can find us standing. We stand for the value of all human life. We stand for the right of families to flourish. And every day, we stand for your freedom to believe and to live out those beliefs both at home and abroad. We work with government officials, educating them on the issues from a biblical worldview. And when necessary, we hold them accountable. We equip Christians across America to be informed, 
take action in their communities. With our daily radio program, television appearances, and vast online presence, we reach people where they are. We envision an America where all human life is valued, families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. That won't be realized if we're not standing. Stand for faith. Stand for family. Stand for freedom. Stand with us at FRC. King David wrote of God's word as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is a timeless truth. For those through the centuries that have embraced this truth, they have found the word of God provides a solid foundation for life. That's why the Family Research Council has embarked upon a two-year chronological Bible reading plan called Stands on the Word. We've made it easy for you to read through the Bible in two years by taking just 10 to 15 minutes, six days a week. And to encourage you on the journey, I have a brief eight to 10 minute devotional each morning, Monday through Friday, that accompanies the reading. You can join me by going to frc.org Bible. That's frc.org Bible. Or you can join me on my Facebook page, Tony Perkins, each morning at 844 Eastern Time. Again, the website, frc.org Bible, or on Facebook at Tony Perkins. Join us, and together we will stand on the Word. Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Thursday. As you can tell, if you're watching, we're not in our studios in Washington, D.C. We are in the studios of his channel in Southern California. We're here for a Friends of FRC dinner with uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tonight. So, um, our, again, our thanks to his channel for uh, hosting us here. Now we're going to continue our discussion and analysis of the 2022 midterm election now, President Biden and the left spent the lead up to the vote, ginning up a fear that there was going to be voter suppression, that all of the election reform efforts that took place post-2020 was designed to keep people from voting. But now that we see record turnouts in many of those places, well, that's kind of dropped off. But here is a question. Why do some states perform better than others in counting the votes? And why is it in this age of technology that we're days, days after the election and still waiting for the results? Joining me now to discuss this and much more, Ken Blackwell, Senior Fellow for Human Rights and Constitutional Governance at the Family Research Council. He previously served as the mayor of the Queen City of Cincinnati and treasurer and secretary of state for Ohio. Ken, welcome back. Hey, Tony, good to be with you. Welcome to uh, Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could use some help counting votes out here. <laughs> Several uh, congressional seats still uh, undecided. So let's talk about that for just a moment because a lot of people are asking this question. I mean, look, this is the age of technology. But a lot of things have happened in the last four years that have made election counting and tabulation a little more difficult. Yeah, you know, Tony, I go back. I, I always refer to a chapter in a book by John uh, Nesbitt, a megatrend, where he talks about high technology, high human touch. Uh, yeah. What has happened, I think, in this age of high technology is that we've started to lose the, the human touch of elections. Elections in our, I can't count anymore. <laughs> We've been relying on calculators. Elections in our, in our country have, over the 247 years, they've been very um, localized uh, human engagements. Uh, and so uh, th th there's been an election day, you know, not an election month. Uh, right. It's happened at the precinct level. Where neighbors know neighbors, uh, and there is a greater sense of people are who they claim to be, right. uh, and two, 
you, you don't have a lot of hands touching your ballot. We, we celebrated the, the, the privacy of the ballot and the sanctity of the, the voting box. And so we've moved away from that. And I, I, I'm at a point now where at the turn of the industrial age, we had Luddites, people who just broke machines, you know, because they didn't understand them, didn't appreciate them. I think I'm at a point now where I would be a 21st century Luddite because I, I think we've moved. I think going we, back to the paper ballots? I, I, paper ballots, election day, except for yeah. a, a voters That's who just can't get out. So put, to, to help people understand what's happened is COVID really accelerated this. And, and, and they did this voting by mail. Uh, and, you know, dropping off ballots and ballot boxes. And as you said, that's high touch. People have to pick those ballots up. They've got to count them. They've got to transport them. They've got to do all this stuff with them. Uh, voting by mail for those states that, uh, you know, people pointed to, uh, I guess, Oregon, Oregon Washington State. state. Mm -hmm. But they prepared for that. It took them, in, I think, if I'm not mistaken, like a decade in Washington State to make that transition to a all vote by mail. And so what you've had in across the country, you've had these changes take place at a really rapid pace, at a rapid pace. The infrastructure hasn't been keeping up with, is that? Yeah, and, and remember this. You know, I am the co-chairman of the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. Yeah, you travel all uh, over the world. All over the world looking at, at, at elections. Uh, we are the only country in the developed world that uses vote-by-mail to the extent that we're, we're, we're using it. Really? Uh, yes, you know, and so. So you mean, you mean even in, in, in Europe? That's right. Those progressive countries? Our, 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 our neighbors up north, Canada. They, why, they, why, they, so uh, why is that? Well, first, let's, let's be honest. A good year for the U.S. Postal Service is a 95%, 96% delivery rate. That's what Wait. happened on my Christmas cards then, right? So, and, and that's why I didn't get General Boykin's uh, card today wishing me happy birthday on the Marine Corps birthday. But uh, anyway. No, anyway. But, you know, so, so this, this in itself is... is so, okay, so, so the reliability of the mechanism of vote by mail, just the right. post office itself. Right. That's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, the, and? The other thing is that too many hands has, have to touch. When I say high tech, high touch... I'm talking about neighbors talking to neighbors yeah. and knowing neighbors. Not, we don't want too many hands touching the ballot from yeah. the time that the, the, yeah. the, the voter cast that ballot until it's counted. And in this system, too many hands are touching. Okay, now let me be very clear on this because you and I have talked about it. You're, you're not suggesting that the reason we're taking so long to get this, that there's some kind of shenanigans going on. You're just saying the process is very drug out and very slow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, 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 the process is more vulnerable to human error. Yeah, you know, right. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a problem in and of itself. But just because we now have, as you said, no longer election day but election month, We've got ballots coming in. We've got ballots coming in after Election Day in some cases. Absolutely. And we, so we have a, even a greater ballot security challenge. Yeah. You know, when, in fact, those ballots have to be under lock and key. But, see, that's what the, that's what the, the Democrats want, that type of a process, an expanded, multi-touched process. Am I correct? I, oh, I think so. That's what they're... One, because what they figure is that if you have a, enough confusion... Uh, if you have tight margins, you you get b ballots uh, 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 vote counts in the era, uh, in the area right, of what I call right, the, the right. era of uh, just just litigation. natural human error. That's right. Okay. So, do you think we could ever go back to an election day? I don't. I don't know if we can get get it back. All of the toothpaste back in in the tube. Yeah. But I actually think that we and we should really and there are. A state legislatures that are basically saying uh, election month is is kind of crazy. A little much, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think they're going to look at how how you shrink that, uh, how you get tighter security on those uh, ballots that have to be delivered by by mail. As you've said before, easy to vote but hard to cheat. Easy to vote but hard to cheat. So let's talk about this new paradigm in voting where vote by mail, drop-off boxes, uh, expanded voting. How, and, and by the way, uh, I, I want you to address this as well. There were precinct watchers, ballot uh, uh, poll watchers all across this country more than ever before, 
And I think that had a profound impact upon this election cycle because we haven't heard a lot of stuff about, you know, shenanigans going on. So is it a matter of adjusting to the new landscape and figuring out how do we dispatch people to make sure that these elections are, in fact, fair and free? Yeah, I, I always say if you're not in the room, you're not in the game, which means that, you know, both sides uh, in our two-party system have to have eyeballs on every aspect of the process. Yeah. You know, both parties. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, absolutely, right. To, to build confidence right. in the result. Right. But those who want to tear down our constitutional republic, they start with tearing down confidence, confidence in our elections. But we've seen the, the exit polling from this election showed that uh, people had a higher level of confidence in the election. It was because we had more people engaged. Right. Uh, and, we, and, and we had a number of laws, reform right. laws, that were passed in the last I, I, two years. Absolutely. And, and that's why it's so strange that, you know, what we saw two years ago, what we saw this year, this season, people saying that the simple common sense practice of a voter photo ID was somehow voter suppression. Uh, it didn't work. It, did, it, it, it didn't prove out in evidence. Right. You know, so if people want to say follow the science, follow the science. People have more confidence in systems when they know that only legal ballots are being counted. Right. right. And that people who cast those ballots are legal voters. Yeah. And photo ID is so commonplace. Why would anybody be opposed to that? Well, just because they would, you know, it's the same choice between do you believe that America is stuck in 1619 or do you actually think that we evolved in, in 1776 and now in 2022, we are a different, more robust well, you're, uh, you're a little more you're a little more generous than I am. <laughs> I, I think the reason people are opposed to very practical procedures such as a a photo ID is because they want they want to cheat the system. They, they, they want, want to be able they want to be able to manipulate it. They want confusion. Yeah. They, they don't they don't want clarity. And and what we're talking about is is common sense practices yeah. and policies that. You got to do it. confidence and and, and you got to do it when you go to the bank, when you go to the airport. I mean, look, there's nothing more important than casting your vote. All right, Ken Blackwell, I want to talk now about. All right, we don't know everything from 2022. We're still counting the ballots, and but we're pretty confident that Republicans will have control of the House. We don't know the the margins they'll have. Could be very very narrow. Going to make it a headache for Kevin McCarthy if he is in fact selected as the Speaker. That's in question. Um, but what's this mean for 2024? What, what are we looking at in 2024 in another, not only a congressional election, but we'll be in a presidential election here? No, I, I, I think this is going to be a robust contest con, uh, uh, in 2024. You know, voters are going to have some contrasting uh, visions of what, what, what America so. is. Probably more and, so. That's right. And so I, I, I think what it, what it says is that we have to stay engaged. You know, we have to, in fact, make sure that all of the polls are covered, that, you know, there are eyeballs on every uh, aspect of the system. Uh, but I think it, it becomes very important for both parties uh, to, in fact, promote their uh, platforms yeah. so that people have clear choices. Right. You know, and that's why I think, you know, as, as a Republican, we have to put, we have to paint in bold colors. We have to draw the contrast to our vision for America, our aspirations, and give voters a choice. And then the voters have to, in fact, engage. I mean, you've been at this for a while, okay? A bit. You've been. I mean, you go back uh, in the '80s. You were mayor of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. There was a time when there wasn't a big difference between the parties. I mean, there was a difference, but it was marginal. And, and you wouldn't see a radical shift when one party took control over the other. But it is like the pendulum of a clock now that it swings because the parties, I think, do have a very strong contrasting ideological worldview. You know, I, I, I do. And I don't think that that is necessarily unhealthy as long as you well, it's have... A reality. Uh, it's, a, it's a reality. It's a reality that it's, I think we have right. to face. That's right. And, and so what you, what you want... Uh, is you know an uh, even playing field, and you want right, you want right. people to 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 engage a fair playing field. That's a fair a fair playing field, and and that's why it is so important that people and parties speak clearly in terms of their vision, because that 
that inspires people, that engages. You know, human engagement, and we, we've said it before, you know, is, is, is what this is all yeah. about. And the human condition is not a spectator sport. That's you just what, can't that's sit what, I mean, that's what I say all the time. That our republic was not made for spectators. <laughs> it right. is made for participants. But in particular, speaking to, to our audience of uh, what we call sage cons, spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives, and by the way, if you don't know if you're a SageCon, uh, you can actually take the SageCon quiz. You can text the word SageCon, S-A-G-E-C-O-N, it's one word, SageCon to 67742. 67742 will send you a link. You take the survey and you'll get the results as to whether or not you're a SageCon. So SageCons, they are motivated not by personality and politics, but rather by the policies and the direction of the country. And I think going back to, as you said, that it's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I mean, look, it's, it's like the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You know exactly what you got out there. And, you, it's, and to use another biblical analogy, uh, Elijah saying, you know, make a choice. How long will you falter between two opinions that he said to the, the Israelites on Mount Carmel before he took on the prophets of Baal? But I, I think we have to realize that every election is going to have one of the consequences will be that we will have a party that will then begin to shape the policies that are 180 degrees from the other party. Yeah. And so our freedoms, our ability to raise our families, to teach our children, to love the Lord and to know him and to live that faith out in the broader society is at risk in every election. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and we know that the difference between our constitutional republic is that God is at the central, is central to it. Uh, and all of the totalitarian uh, states that I've ever visited, they try to run God and faith out of the public square, crush the family, uh, and make people more dependent. Not free citizens, but right. subjects. Depends. And so it's so important that we stay, we stay engaged. And I, let me just say this about this last election. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a tsunami, perhaps, uh, but there were major victories. And we cannot let the yeah. devil, we right. cannot let the devil, you know, this right. steal our, our joy. Yeah. We, we can't. And, and, and something that, uh, and we're up against the end of the program, but uh, Pastor Gary Hamrick said yesterday is that, hey, we saw Roe overturned. We didn't expect some kind of backlash from the devil. <laughs> That's right. Ken Blackwell, always good to see you, my Tony, brother. always good to be see with you. See you tonight. All right. Folks, I want to thank you for joining us as well. Be sure and take that SageCon survey. Text the word SageCon, S-A-G-E-C-O-N, to 67742 and find out if you are a SageCon. And be sure and tune in tomorrow. I'll be back here in the studio, the Lord willing here at uh, his channel, and we'll be having a special Veterans Day edition of Washington Watch. General Boykin will be joining me tomorrow as well. Good to have you with us. Until next time, I leave you what's once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.